welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm your host, Jen Pan, as always, and today, uh, here to help me open the show is the same guy we had on last week, none other than Paul Prescott. Paul, how are you? Good. I'm glad to be back two weeks in a row. So uh, We obviously love having you. Uh, this week, uh, Labor Paul, we wanted to have you on because... Kids are obviously going back to school, and I think the big item in the news right now is that many school districts are experiencing a teacher shortage. Now, I think that uh, probably most of our audience knows that you yourself used to be a public school teacher. Um, You're not anymore, so in a way, you are contributing to the teacher shortage. Uh, But of course, uh, we wanted to have you on to talk about what's been going on. Um, Now, just as a little bit of background on the teacher shortage, uh, you know, I, I think people have probably heard the news. Uh, This is happening kind of all across the country. I'll just say here in New Mexico, uh, there have been so many teacher vacancies that earlier this year, the state approved emergency pay raises for teachers. And I think the bit of news that people probably saw was that the governor uh, was asking National Guard members to fill in as substitute teachers. So, you know, there's a lot going on. Uh, I I also do want to mention, though, that I don't think that the teacher shortages are uniform across the country. Uh, I think that's something that's interesting. But also not surprising is that the school districts that were kind of struggling before the pandemic with vacancies and with funding are the ones that have been hit the hardest. And I think that, you know, more affluent kind of well off districts um, haven't been experiencing, you know, at the teacher shortage on the same level. So uh, as uh, somebody contributing directly to the teacher shortage, uh, Paul, what got us to this point? Yeah, well, really, I just want to say I am single-handedly responsible for this crisis, so I, I would like to apologize <laughs> to the public education system. Um, but yeah, so, you know, in all seriousness, I mean, first, you're right to point out that um, it's not uniform across the board. I mean, it's not that surprising that the districts that have been struggling for a while um, with staffing shortages are, are experiencing them worse even now. But what we're looking at now, I mean, they're saying there's a, around a shortage of 300,000 teachers and staff across the country. Um, some um, rural districts are shifting to four-day school weeks because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this is pretty bad. But I think, you know, I'll start by saying, like, a lot of other things that we're seeing now, um, they, this was a problem before COVID. And COVID, I think, kind of helped push it over the edge and exasperate yeah. it even even more. And I think a lot of this stems to, I mean, simply, like, you know, teaching is just an extremely difficult job, even when everything is going right, even when you have mm-hmm all the resources. But of course, in so many districts, you know, the, the resources are just not there. And I think I think everyone's a little biased about their own job being uniquely difficult. And I guess I'm in this way as a former teacher, but it really is hard to overstate, I mean, just how much work goes into teaching. Um, you know, the, the hours do not exist just from, you know, the school day, all the extra time grading, lesson planning, um, reaching out to families. So it, it's an overwhelming job that's just been made more and more difficult over time. And I think it's hard to pinpoint an exact um, time when all these dynamics started, but I think we can kind of look at the 2008 financial crisis and the aftermath of that, this wave of austerity where you know federal, state, local budgets are being cut, um, and especially school districts. And we saw, and you know that produced a lot of terrible things. It also produced some positive developments and fightbacks from teachers union. You know, we had the famous Chicago teacher strike 2012, I mean, that was really initiated in response to um, a wave of school closures around that same time in Philadelphia. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't have a strike against it, but 
there was something called the doomsday budget, which was passed, you know, about 25 schools were closed. Um, so really since that time, you've just seen the, the quality of, of the job decline. So, you know, higher, uh, you know, uh, class sizes, um, less resources, less support staff, you know, in Philadelphia for a long time, you know, we didn't have school nurses in every building. We had very few librarians, counselors being cut. So all that has kind of just been grinding on teachers for so long and COVID kind of pushed some things over the over the edge. And we've had in the last 10 years a 35% decline in enrollment in teacher education programs. So that's a huge drop off. And, you know, just to kind of paint a picture, if you are a first year teacher in a high poverty school district that's underfunded, I mean, what's your walking into i mean you're walking into you know you're going to have 35 40 kids in your class um very likely in, in in many cases not having air conditioning so actually today and tomorrow in the philadelphia public school district this is only the second and third day of the school year many schools are having a half day because of the heat and they don't have air conditioning um you know buildings falling apart roofs leaking um and then, you know, you're in a classroom where, you know, there might be many kids with special education needs. There's not enough staff to support that. In the same class, you might have other kids who are advanced and like are bored because, you know, you're not moving fast enough. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with all of that at the same time. That's what you're walking into. And your salary is like you're starting at like 45000 for a year in some cases. So, I mean, this was, again, the, the turnover rate was already bad before COVID, these conditions, I mean, and you have to get a degree. So most people are in debt to be right. making such little money to be working so hard. And I think so many teachers were at this point already. And then with COVID, um, it was kind of like, you know, why, why, why am I doing this anymore? So, you know, COVID with the virtual learning, I think was a hard adjustment um, for many teachers and put more stress and then I think uh, another factor was the return to school um, because yeah. you know, we know public schools are so important for socialization. And actually from some of my former coworkers, they kind of reported last school year when they returned from virtual learning, there were so many more fights um, yeah. among kids, uh, so many more behavior problems because, I mean, they, they were missing out kind of on some crucial years. So it was kind of like... Uh, coming back into that, it's made even worse and more stressful. And I think so many teachers for all these confluence of reasons are just saying like, enough is enough. Um, you know, we, we just can't do this anymore. Why am I doing this when I could another job, make more money, less stress. Yeah. Um, so it's really about this declining quality of the job for, for decades now. Yeah. Um, I, I want to pick up on this point about the pandemic uh, because, you know, something I was thinking about is, you know, teachers unions are perpetually under attack from Republicans. Right. Uh, I feel like during the pandemic, though, the right kind of found uh, sort of new ammunition in number one, these kind of curriculum culture war battles. Uh, but two, the pandemic lockdowns, uh, the lockdowns, you know, I think sort of ended up being very politically unpopular. Um, this is, you know, I just feel like I have to say not to blame the teachers or the unions. Uh, I think when the pandemic was active and going on, uh, the lockdowns probably were the right thing to do. Nobody knew how COVID was going to play out. Uh, but, you know, as as you just pointed out, they did lead to kind of emotional and behavioral problems among kids. I think re remote learning was incredibly difficult. And so as a result, you know, you now have a lot of parents who are you know, may have to be working from home themselves, are incredibly frustrated that, you know, they're suddenly dealing with the kind of double duty of having to be at their jobs and doing this childcare. And so it, it kind of became a political, um, 
uh, tornado, I feel. Uh, so the, the broader question for you, I guess, is how do you feel like the pandemic changed the leverage that teachers unions have? Yeah, and I, it's a good point because I, I almost think it was like a no-win situation for teachers yeah. unions during that period because, I mean, you're right, it was it virtual learning sucked. And I think, yeah. you know, and, and to be fair, I think teachers were very clear like that it wasn't good and this wasn't the ideal, but there's just no getting around. It sucked and it was hard on parents and students. And, and I think, you know, there probably were certain situations where in hindsight we could have said maybe lockdowns lasted too long and things like that. But I think it definitely allowed the right wing to seize on very real issues and, and real um, discontent among parents to weaponize against teachers. And so I imagine now it's hard for me to say being in Philadelphia, I don't think it was the same dynamic. But I imagine maybe in more rural areas, that was another point of frustration for teachers where all of a sudden the job has become you know, overly politicized around dumb culture wars. Then you have the right. critical race theory stuff. And you know the right wing is kind of seizing on winning elections to school boards and making teachers' lives very difficult. So I imagine that could have been a factor also in many teachers deciding, like, this is just too, too much to deal with. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it definitely was a setback for teachers' unions and I think maybe in the public eye and how much the right was able to kind of step into that space. Um, but, you know, now there's, like, another just contradiction being thrown up where it's like, you know, these right-wing governors who've been – attacking education for so long. I mean, they're also now dealing with this crisis of, oh shit, now we got to fill these classrooms with right. teachers. What are we going to do? Um, I think, we, you know, you've probably heard about certain areas they are like saying veterans can just come in the classroom and start teaching. Um, there are some areas where they're offering like $10,000 bonuses to, to mm -hmm. teach. Um, but again, that's like a short-term one-time thing. I mean, if you're not improving pay and conditions over the long-term, you know, you kind of have to, I think, have a passion for teaching if you're going to deal with a job that difficult and in, in less resources. So I think someone who might be looking to get in quick for the short-term pay, it's hard for me to imagine they're going to last if they don't really yeah. improve the quality of, of the occupation over the long term. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, an, another kind of difficult piece of the puzzle is I was just reading that public school enrollment over the last at least year, maybe two years, has also dropped, right? So there's, you know, now far fewer students actually going to public schools than there was prior to the pandemic. And that, of course, affects funding. So it seems like, you know, you have a kind of snowball effect where the public school system is, uh, you know, feeling pressure from all different angles, which, of course, just makes conditions worse across the board. So I suppose the final question for you is, number one, how have teachers and their unions been sort of fighting back, uh, uh, you know, aside from just dropping out of the workforce, how have teachers and their unions been sort of fighting against these these worsening uh, austerity conditions and, and working conditions? Uh, and number two, like, what can we all do to revitalize public education and kind of break out of this vicious cycle? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think pre-COVID, I mean, we saw a great example like the Red for Red movement, the strike wave that happened in places like West Virginia, Kentucky, um, Los Angeles, Oklahoma. So I think that was a great example pre-COVID of what the fight back was looking like. And a lot of that was kind of rank and file led and the leadership kind of followed along after that. Um, and so, you know, those were over the, the same kind of austerity conditions. And I think teacher unions have been trying during the COVID pandemic to highlight like you know we'd be in a better position to deal with this if we had more resources i mean i was on the show 
uh, in, during the height of it, talking about Philadelphia, where, I mean, our message was, we want to go back to school, but our, our buildings literally do not have ventilation to be able yeah. to do that correctly. So they've been trying to, you know, use that message. I think it's a tough argument to make um, in this moment. Um, but, you know, you see that happening. I'm interested to see now that we're mostly back in person and kind of returning a little bit more to normal, how those fights over austerity are going to pick back up maybe in a non-COVID context because they, they have to keep continuing in this way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, I mean, we have to get to a point where we are not funding education solely on property taxes because that's clearly <laughs> just going to reproduce these same dynamics. You know, I mean... We don't have to look very far in this country to see like what can work for public education because many of our kind of more affluent suburban districts, not even extremely wealthy areas, but many of those school districts are working well. And, you know, parents are not drawn to charters or private schools in that way because they have faith in their local public schools. And it's for a very clear reason that they are funded better because there's a more affluent tax base. So we, we know kind of what works. It's already happening in our own backyard, but we need the funding and support um, to do that. So we need just to have a, a massive shift in the way we fund education. And I mean, it has to come ultimately at the federal level, but I think there are ways we can start fighting at this on the state level. I mean, in Pennsylvania, we've been fighting forever to tax fracking, which isn't taxed at all, to fund our education system. You know, in Arizona in 2020, they won a ballot initiative to tax the rich to fund public education more. So I think those state level fights can be waged and won on the road to more federal funding across the board for public education that is not based on a locality's property taxes. All right. Well, Labor Paul, thank you as always for your time. Hopefully we will get you back on sooner rather than later. Thanks for having me. Always great to be here. All right. So now coming up on the show, we will be talking to Vivek Chibber about his new book, Confronting Capitalism. I'll also be speaking with our good friend, David Griscom, about whether a patriotic socialism is possible. Uh, but first, I am speaking to Debt Collective member Thomas Gokey about Biden's recent student loan cancellation plan. All right. I'm now here with Thomas Gokey. He is an organizer with the organization The Debt Collective, and he's also a contributor to Jacobin. Thomas, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So, of course, uh, in the world of student debt and student loans, last week, the big news was that the Biden administration announced it would cancel up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt for borrowers and up to $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients. Uh, as I mentioned, you're part of the group, The Debt Collective, which has been organizing around the issue of student debt, uh, in addition to kind of other forms of debt for basically the last decade. So uh, just to kick off, what do you make of Biden's executive order? Uh, obviously, in the context of a still growing student debt crisis? Yeah, I think it proves that if we can cancel $10,000 of student debt, we can cancel it all. And uh, we always knew that a jubilee and fully funding public uh, college and universities is the only practical solution. Uh, so it's it's nice to see that this is sort of a, a down payment on fulfilling that promise. 
can you talk a little bit about how we kind of got to this point in the student debt crisis? Uh, because, you know, I think we've been seeing a lot of criticisms of uh, Biden's student debt relief plan from kind of opponents who are like, well, I paid off my loans, you know, in, in, in three years when I was 20, uh, when I was 22. So why should I be paying for somebody else's, you know, uh, philosophy degree or whatever? Uh, give us a sense of where we are in the student debt crisis, because I remember when we passed the one trillion dollar uh, mark and that actually was quite a while ago. And I think that we're almost to double that at this point. Uh, so so what's been going on in the U.S.? Yeah. So if you if you look at people who went to uh, public schools in the U.S., say like in before the 1980s, they were getting, uh, you know, they were able to graduate with a very small amount of student debt because everybody else paid their way to go to college. Uh, this, this was the vast majority of the financing was public financing, mm-hmm. and there was only a small remainder left over. And over the course of uh, several decades, that public financing has been cut over and over and over, and schools have been making up the difference by raising tuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as today, uh, it's it's really the current students who are being asked to pay their own way, and you just can't do that. So right. it's really only the wealthy who are able to graduate without any student debt, and uh, sort of the less intergenerational wealth that you have, the more debt you're forced to take on. There are several other factors that come into play. I mean, it's a complicated system, but um, yeah, that's sort of the, the brief summary that, you know, Mitch McConnell paid $300 a semester right. um, or, and he was the beneficiary of socialism, but in his own mind, he, you know, he paid his way. Uh, nobody mm-hmm. helped him out. And uh, yeah, the, the, the frustrating thing for me is that from a purely financial perspective, fully funding two and four year public colleges and university is very affordable on the mm-hmm. scale of the U.S. economy and the federal budget. This is a teeny, teeny like rounding error. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a practical and financial standpoint, the solution is really easy. The trouble is um, political. It's, yeah. you know, that people just don't have the power to, to enact uh, that kind of a solution. Right. I, I, I want to bring up now another criticism that I've heard circulating. Uh, so it's it's kind of this like faux populist criticism that I think a lot of people on the right have latched onto recently, which is that, you know, uh, uh, non-college educated Americans like plumbers and FedEx drivers or construction workers will basically end up paying for, like like I said before, the, the kind of like expensive, frivolous philosophy degrees of affluent college students. Uh, that's the argument that uh, we're, we've been hearing from a lot of Republicans about, you know, what Biden's uh, student debt cancellation will kind of uh, amount to. And I think that it's worth sort of uh, taking this taking this criticism head on, because I think, you know, there 
the sort of kernel of truth, if you want to call it that, is that uh, most people in America don't have a college degree, right? And that, you know, the kind of life chances of a non-college educated person versus a college educated person are still different on the aggregate. Uh, I think that a college degree is certainly worth uh, a little bit less than it was maybe, you know, several decades ago, but at the same time still kind of protects you from the worst ravages of the labor market, right? So that's kind of the kernel of truth there. But given all of that, why does it not make sense to think about student debt relief in in term in these terms? Yeah, there's a couple of things to say about that. One is um, just the extraordinary amount of fiction that some of these uh, critics need to believe mm-hmm. that the truck driver, the construction worker doesn't have student debt. Right. Um, 40% of people with student debt don't have a degree, often because it was simply too expensive for them to continue and finish their degree. And then, you know, a lot of these um, uh, trade schools are predatory for-profit schools. You know, one of the biggest ones, ITT Technical Institute, trained a lot of truck drivers, but Mm -hmm. it was a fraudulent school that buried people in massive amounts of debt. And, uh, you know, these these scam schools are really about funneling public funds into private investors' hands. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the working class who is basically priced out of higher ed yeah. and forced to take on debt if they dare... To, to get an education. The thing that is really frustrating to me is that people don't adequately understand how we currently finance higher education. A significant portion of it is done through the back door, through the tax code, where it really is the working class who are shouldering a larger portion of the tax burden to provide hefty tax breaks for rich kids to go to Ivy League schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we just removed those tax credits, uh, so for example, if you're, uh, if you're wealthy enough to save money at the end of the month after you pay all of your bills into a 529 college savings plan, you get a tax break. Right. But poor people don't get that tax break because they don't have any money left over. Uh, so if we just eliminated those tax breaks and spent that money directly on fully funding public education, working class people could get the same high quality education without going into any debt. So I think the uh, final question I want to ask you is um, Biden's ex- executive order obviously didn't come out of nowhere. Um, now, that said, you know, lots of I mean, it was very rare to find a mainstream politician who was talking about student debt, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, now, obviously, that has that has changed a lot over the last several years. And, you know, I think that the debt collective and other organizers around the topic of student debt have been uh, have played a major role in that. So what has the work of the debt collective uh, and again, other other organizers around this issue looked like up until this point up until this point? Uh, and then, of course, what's next uh, in terms of of, you know, debt relief organizing. Yeah, the the Debt Collective really kicked this off in 2015 by organizing a student debt strike among former students who attended for-profit schools like ITT Tech, like Corinthian College Incorporated, 
like Art Institute, uh, students who refused to pay their student loans until the Obama administration started enforcing the laws that had never been enforced before because they, they protect poor people. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, it, it took us seven years, but earlier this summer, all Corinthian student debt is being wiped out. It's mm-hmm. like half a million people, uh, almost $6 billion worth of student debt. And then just last month, most ITT tech that got canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, but that really put us on the path to researching and understanding the existing legal authority to cancel student debt. And that Congress has already authorized the secretary to cancel as much student debt as they want. Uh, so there's no reason that Biden couldn't have canceled it all. Uh, that's what justice would require. Um, and there's no reason we can't do this again as many times as it takes until we uh, fully fund college for all. Mm-hmm. Now, the Debt Collective has been doing a lot on student debt, but we also are tackling medical debt, carceral debt, housing debt, payday loans, and things like that. So um, I think this sort of juices our uh, desire to cancel all of these other types of debt. We've got really interesting projects in California, right now there's a wave of evictions happening in California. We've created a, a tenant power toolkit that makes it as simple as it possibly can be to file a defense to an eviction, to sort of halt it in its tracks and to link people up with local tenant rights organizations and legal support. We're also fighting um, bail debt in California. We think that uh, if, if we can reach the people who are impacted and file the right paperwork, that we can just cancel a large amount of bail debt. Um, but ultimately, the solution here, you know, the solution to medical debt is Medicare for all. The solution to student debt is college for all. Right. So we've got that on the horizon and... We've, I feel like we've accomplished a lot of things that people told us were impossible. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm hoping that people can see more clearly how actually winning Medicare for all, actually winning college for all, these are possible winnable fights. Mm-hmm. Well said. Uh, all right. Thomas Goki, again, is an organizer with the Debt Collective, and we will link that down below. Thomas, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. All right, so I will be back with David Griscom in just a minute. But first, a quick message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in September and get your first month free. This month's selections are... Cannibal Capitalism, How Our System is Devouring Democracy, Care, and the Planet, and What We Can Do About It by Nancy Fraser, an analysis of contemporary capitalism's insatiable appetite and a rallying cry for everyone who wants to stop it from devouring our world. Self-Defense, A Philosophy of Violence by Elsa Dorland, a look across the global history of the left tracing the politics, philosophy, and ethics of self-defense. The 2023 Versal Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, a week-to-view planner for keeping track of the year ahead and Microverses, Observations from a Shattered Present by Dylan Riley. Over a hundred short essays inviting us to think about society and social theory in new ways. Become a member today at versobooks.com. 
All right. I'm now here with David Griscom. You, of course, know him as co-host of the excellent show, Left Reckoning. He is also a contributor to Jacobin and, of course, friend of the show. Uh, David, it has been far too long. It's really good to see you. No, it's really great seeing you too, Jen. So I wanted to have you on today to talk about something uh, which I think is pretty interesting, and that is the topic of patriotism. Uh, now, obviously, I, I know that you have some good thoughts on this, um, but I, I guess I'll set us up a little bit by just mentioning that, of course, you know, among progressives and on the left, I think patriotism or the concept of patriotism is often very contentious, right? And for good reason. Um, everybody watching this, of course, knows that the U.S. has a very checkered history, uh, to say the least, of, you know, genocide, slavery, uh, imperialism. And I want to say, especially on that last point, you know, I was a teacher teenager during the, the George W. Bush administration, uh, which means, you know, after 9-11, uh, we had a kind of massive expansion of the security state, the war on terror, and of course, uh, very costly interventions overseas. And I, I bring that up because during this time period, as I'm sure you probably remember as well, patriotism in the U.S., or I, I should say there was a huge push among both the political class and the media apparatus to uh, equate patriotism in the U.S. with being pro-war, being pro-intervention, being pro-war on terror. George W. Bush literally said, if you're not with us, you're against us in the fight against terrorism. I think we, you know, if you were alive during that time, I think that you remember that. Uh, and so obviously, you know, that's all to say that in our not very recent history, patriotism, at least, you know, on the part of the on the part of elites has been really pushed as a as something that's synonymous with like heavy nationalism, jingoism, uh, and xenophobia. Now, all of that said, uh, the question that I want to pose to you is: Given all of that, is it possible for socialists to kind of adopt a kind of pro-Americanism or patriotism that is not synonymous with those things? Uh, can and should socialists be patriots? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a it's obviously a bit complicated, and I think that um, you know there there's a lot of themes that that go into this, and particularly there's a lot of like just to be clear, like very very left online debates about this that, that are happening right now, and like you know to talk about like you know patriotism or whatever, it's like you know a, there's some people uh, who sometimes come up on the left with this like bright idea, um, you know, which is never going to work. That if we just hug the flag a little bit better, give it a couple kisses, then we're somehow going to, you know, undo decades and decades of of losses that we've experienced in this country. So of course, I think that that's absolutely foolish. Um, but I also do find that on our side, a lot of people, and it's a product of of our system, mm -hmm. um, are sort of purposefully like ignorant of the the history of this country. And I mean, maybe, I, I want to talk maybe about a couple examples in, in a moment, but just like. To think about it, like there's a reason for that. Um, you know, like here in Texas, for example, like there is a huge fight about how we teach history in our public education system. Mm -hmm. And it's a fight that the right wing is winning. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important, um, you know, that we're pushing back against that and recognizing that, you know, one of the things that they really do want to do is they want to erase all of this history of resistance, of kind of alternative paths for this country, because Unlike, I think, what a lot of leftists sometimes think, you know, American history was not just one kind of like slow march of, you know, brutal capitalism, right. private property, love and boys. Right. Um, at every moment, there were people who were resisting. And, yeah, the fact is they lost. But I find myself as a, as a socialist 
um, you know, and also as an American that I think it's very worthwhile to see yourself as a part of this long tradition of trying to fight for a much, much better world. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. And uh, something I was just thinking about is, you know, the late, great Eugene Debs, uh, I think, mm-hmm. has many choice quotes about the dangers of patriotism. Uh, you know, he has a very famous quote about how, like, the ruling class and tyrants uh, just love mm-hmm. to wrap themselves up in the cloak of patriotism to exploit and oppress, uh, you know, the working masses. Um, he has a famous line where he says something like, I have no country, I'm a citizen of the world, right? And obviously, this this sort of degree of uh, internationalism has always been part of socialism. And and we should talk about that more. Um, Now, that said, I think that Debs is a great example because, you know, despite him saying all of that, I think in his own way, he was a patriot. Um, I think that he also, again, is part of a very American tradition. Uh, He, the man ran for president like five times, right? Uh, And, uh, you know, on the subject of war and nationalism and jingoism, like he was a great early anti-war uh, advocate. And again, as you were saying, that is also part of a very, very American tradition. Uh, so that's to say that like, I, I think it's clear that I I feel like there is a place for kind of hearkening back to those traditions and calling them American and not shying away from the idea that they are part of the American tradition. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I suppose a follow up question is um, to to what extent should the left lean into this kind of Americanism, right, or this kind of pro American sentiment? Because like I think as we've been hinting, it seems like at a certain point you might start to be playing with fire a little bit, or 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 are Definitely. you? Yeah, no, I mean, um, you know, I think it's, it's uh, Lawrence Goodwin, uh, the book above my head right now, the the populist moment, right? Talking about the American Populist Party. Um, and he has an interesting line in the introduction there where he says, you know, in America, because we have had such a lack of class parties, mm-hmm. regionalism and nationalism have sort of like replaced that space yeah. in politics. Um, and I think that, you know, um, this is why we desperately need to be building, you know, class rooted, um, you know, organizations that do recognize that kind of common, common, like, um, you know, brotherhood or whatever term you want to use of like the global working class and the historic working class. Um, but I think a lot of people are very confident and comfortable with saying things like that and then sort of mix it with this disdain of you know a kind of average american character and i think a lot of that is imported um from a lot of liberalism like Mm -hmm. i'm just gonna you know i'll I'll say it right now like i you know i grew up um you know (laughs) around a lot of hippies and um you know they were always very worked up about you know cheeseburgers and you know the nfl (laughs) and things like that right and you see that just is so commonplace i think in a lot of kind of left-wing um Mm -hmm. communities and, and spaces and i think it's incredibly alienating Um, you know, and like, like just be really clear, like talking about any form of like patriotism, if you don't mind, I have a, I have a little quote here, um, that I think sort of underlines what I'm talking about. Um, so this is, and people should watch, there's a really great dramatic uh, reenactment of this, uh, with James Earl Jones voicing the great, uh, socialist and American Paul Robeson, who was pulled in front of the house of un-American activities. Um, and I'll just read a quick segment from it because I think this really hits at what I'm at least trying to get at, where it's not some kind of rose-colored, mm-hmm. you know, rosy-colored like glasses view of history, but it's actually recognizing that there is a historical debt um, that working-class people deserve um, that that is paid. So, uh, Mr. Ro- uh, Paul Robeson is talking about his experience in Russia, which is why he was being brought up, and he says, "In Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being." 
No color prejudice like in Mississippi. No color prejudice like in Washington. It was the first time I felt like a human being when I did not feel the pressure of color as I feel it in this committee today. And then one of the people who is, you know, grilling him says, well, then why did you not stay in Russia? This is the this is the bit that you know really moves me. Mm-hmm. Robeson says, because my father was a slave and my people died to build this country and I'm going to stay here and have a part in it just like you mm-hmm. and no fascist minded people will drive me from it. Is that clear? Right. And like this sort of embodies the kind of spirit that like at least I, I try to promote in like reclaiming a bunch of, of this history is that yeah. like we have this really, you know, strong history. It's a lot of it is incredibly tragic, right? Yeah. Um, but there are debts that deserve to be paid, and I don't think that we should evacuate, um, you know, that 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 to the right wing, who's very willing um, to, you know, do a kind of make believe version of of American history. Right. Um, but our reaction to that shouldn't be completely ceding ground to them. Right. On like who has the traditions here? Because right. you know the the left in this country has been here from the get go, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we we have a historical debt that needs to be paid, and we also have people. Um, who we should be, you know, learning from um, as well. I I, I want to now ask you about uh, like how that factors into our political strategy and our political yeah. messaging now. And this, okay, I admit this is like a little bit of a cop out, but I think that someone like Bernie Sanders is really good at sort of threading the needle between. Um, like, I don't think that there's anybody who questions that Bernie Sanders is a patriot, legitimately. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, he, you know, has never shied away from criticizing America's shortcomings. And like I said, I think that he manages to thread that needle very well. And something I was thinking about is, I think part of the reason why he's so good at it, like, isn't because he's like, you know, a like, master, like orator or anything like that. But because he's just very clear that, for example, he's super pro veteran, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. anti war, anti Pentagon spending, right? He's very pro American worker, pro American manufacturing, anti free trade, but at the same time, pro immigrant, pro immigration. And uh, I, I think that, you know, not everybody, but I think that sometimes, uh, progressives and, you know, people on the left, uh, have, have struggled to kind of pull those things apart, uh, the way mm. that I think he has. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. And, and, you know, if you see, if you see place, if you see room for like a little bit of light flag waving, so to speak <laughs> in our modern political strategy. I mean, I think um, more than anything, you know, what what you're getting at is that like Bernie Sanders has something that is very visceral, like it doesn't take much investigation um, to to feel it, to understand it, that he has a genuine love of like the people and like the broad sense in this idea that, no, we shouldn't accept, um, you know, that in a country, as Bernie Sanders always says, that, you know, has so much wealth that there are, you know, nearly 30 million people who are hungry. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't accept, um, you know, for example, like what's happening here in Texas, um, <clears throat> where people who are in the National Guard being pulled up to the border for a political stunt right. uh, for Abbott are dying on on are like literally dr- drowning in the Rio Grande and not being uh, taken care of um, mm-hmm. on the other side. Like their families don't get um, you know a, a killed in action um, pension like they would if they were to be sir if they were to be killed in the line of duty if they were called up by the federal government. Right? We shouldn't accept these kinds of things. Yeah. And that comes out of one, like, you know, a a correct moral position that like there's a lot of abuse in this country, but it also comes from a deep love of the people in this country and saying they Mm -hmm. deserve a hell of a lot more than what they've been getting. And I think that that, you know, I I, I find that that's so much more um, motivating than any kind of like symbolic, you know, 
flag waving kind of thing. I think really rooting it in people rather than rooting it in symbols, I think is the best kind of political tactic that we should be, um, you know, following. But like, you know, I, I, again, I think that there are some people who get uncomfortable with even saying things like I love the American people. Like, I think the American people are, are truly wonderful. And like, I say this as somebody who grew up very poor in this country. You know, whenever um, and obviously I would much prefer there to be a social welfare state that was taking care of us more. But whenever somebody was down and out, people would show up and they yeah. would they would bring food. People didn't have nothing. And like that's something that will stick with me forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, really inspires a lot of my politics, my motivation um, for promoting these ideas, because I know that like there is a, you know, a soul in, in this in this people that is very egalitarian, that is very community oriented. And I think that those are traditions that we should in- certainly uh, be incorporating um, in mm-hmm. in our politics. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, again, like Mike Davis, uh, you know, says that, you know, contrary to like what a lot of people think about the working class movement in this country, it's not that there hasn't been a working class movement in this country is that every time they've had a confrontation with capital, they got beat and they got beat extremely bad. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's like, it's like to honor them and also to bolster ourselves so that we don't go into the fights that are in front of us. Um, (laughs) ignorant, you know, without learning the lessons from, from history that we do try to to spend some time rooting ourselves Mm -hmm. in this really strong and proud tradition of Mm -hmm. American working class uh, politics. So again, like for me, like the question of patriotism is always going to be less about, you know, if you're wearing the right, you know, flag or something like that, (laughs) and more about having a genuine um, love and, and care and belief and a fundamental belief um, in the kind of revolutionary potential of, of American people, just like you, sh- uh, you know, just like I share that um, with my revolutionary belief in the Bolivian people or, or the Mexican people or the Brazilian people. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but like for some reason, <laughs> I think some people on our side have a very hard time um, sort of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, so on that question, uh, do you see patriotism necessarily at odds with internationalism? And, you know, I I had sort of mentioned this before, but I want to bring up the Bernie Sanders example again, because I think that if there's something that people on the left were kind of constantly like hitting him on, it was his foreign policy, right? Or like that lack thereof. And like, just to be clear, like, I think that Bernie Sanders foreign policy, which uh, I'm obviously, you know, uh, summarizing quite a bit, but kind of, you know, uh, it. I would say that you could sort of characterize it as like a dovish anti-interventionism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, he's very clear that he thinks that you know, he, he's he's a kind of like classic guns or butter sort of politician where he wants the money to be spent here in the U.S. rather than, you know, in foreign interventions and, and on the mm-hmm. Pentagon. Uh, but you can contrast him with somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, right, on the other side of the ocean, who I think kind of, uh, for better or for worse, sort of evinces more of like an internationalist spirit, or at least had that reputation as a politician. Uh, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you see the two as being at odds? That's, I mean, that's, that's a true. I mean, uh, I will just say about Corbyn, I think that you're definitely right in the sense that Corbyn um, has, like, I think, was a little bit more rooted in that kind of international movement than, than Bernie was. But also, I mean, Corbyn was also very quintessentially uh, British in a lot of ways. Yes. I mean, like, he loved his allotment. Um, and he's a very good, you know, uh, vegetable grower and all mm-hmm, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So I think that, you know, th- that's, that's worthwhile to, to remember, too. Um, but I mean, Certainly, like whatever kind of politics that we're trying to construct is inherently anti-war mm-hmm. and inherently, um, uh, you know, anti-empire in the sense of like yeah. the United States dictating to the rest of the world. Um, and also like something dictating like policies to the rest of the world. And also, again, like this is where it's important to, you know, not 
I think zoom in too much on things that you miss like the whole picture, because like when we're also talking about empire and like the power of, of the American state, you also have to remember like what's the biggest tool that they have. Certainly it's the guns and the big ass military, yeah. but it's also black rock and wall street. Yeah. Right. And the fact is, is that these fights that we're having internally, right. Against capitalism, against capital um, in general, like that has a lot of effects that, that expand way outside of the United States. So this is not like saying like only for us, exclusively right um it's recognizing that okay well as a as an american there are a lot there are two big engines that create a lot of misery and pain for people and that is like the u.s military and that is also uh you know the u.s financial system Mm -hmm. and you know attacking those weakening their power is going to help out people all across the the globe and also help out uh people like in alabama right now Mm -hmm. you know where Mm -hmm. you have miners on strike for over a year fighting against new york-based wall street capital right um you know so i i i i think that like you know you don't have to say I don't find these things to be inherently at odds um, with each other, having an anti-war and internationalist perspective, and also saying, I think that American people deserve better than they're getting from this system, right? Right. And I think that that's like the trap um, that some folks fall into is they create this like, you know, false binary where it's like, well, if you're saying we need to look out for American workers, that means I'm putting up two middle fingers to everybody else, right? (laughs) Right. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, to all of our, our friends and comrades um, in other countries who are fighting against these systems, they would love if there was like a vibrant working class movement in this country that right. was able to weaken the power of BlackRock, right? Like these things are very helpful to them, too. Right, right. Um, and this is why this conversation sometimes gets so frustrating to me, because it becomes this like binary and people assume like the worst. And like, I can understand maybe some of the historic reasons why some people are allergic to certain terms. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think especially if you look at the history of, um, you know, socialist movements in other countries, there has always been like, oh, well, our people have this kind of spirit and we want to recognize right. it and unleash it. Right. Um, right. I don't you know, it's 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 bizarre to me that people, uh, you know, think that that's inherently going to be reactionary in the American context. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, on that note, and and I think that this will be the final question for you, but I have to ask: You're a Texan. Uh, let's let's talk about Texas pride. You've you've yeah. <laughs> you've brought up uh, Texas a few times uh, throughout the course of this conversation, and um, I I mean, you know, probably at, as I think you were saying earlier, like there's a lot of regional pride in different parts mm-hmm. of the country, right? Texas, I think, has a lot, a lot of pride. We all know not to mess with Texas. Uh, and as you were saying, you know, that I think much like patriotism or nationalism, uh, can, can be harnessed to reactionary ends. There's obviously a lot going on in Texas right now. Uh, but, uh, you're a proud Texan. Uh, talk to us about Texas pride. Yeah, I mean, like, um, I think this is like a, a place in particular where this fight ends up being really important. Yeah. And this is where, like, when we don't stand up um, for our actual history, you get, you get, you know, um, folks like Abbott and Cruz presenting this completely upside down view of, of Texas history. Like, yeah. maybe to give like one quick, like, just a couple of things off off the top, right? Texas, um, you know, has, has a very... Um, violent and and brutal history and it also has a lot of kind of utopian hopeful aspects to its history i mean you know people might not know this but y'all know Karl marx tried to immigrate uh to texas because there was a lot of german socialists who were creating uh, these communities short drive from me there's a town called comfort texas where a bunch of german socialists um had sort of created a a semi-socialist like commune out there 
fervently um, abolitionist. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Texas seceded, they sent out the Confederate Army to basically require everybody uh, pledge loyalty to the Confederacy. The people of Comfort, Texas, refused. And there was a skirmish and they were they were massacred. Right. Mm-hmm. So, again, this isn't a win, but this is like this is our history and our spirit. Yeah. I think a larger example, something that hope, I'm working on, hopefully will be out in, in Jackman soon, um, is a history about the uh, the Texas fence cutters, which was this amazing uh, moment in, in our history. And I bring it up, one, because it's an interesting um story but two like again i'm I'm a history nerd so i spent a lot of time on the blogs and stuff whenever this story is presented it's always presented as like this is when law and order came to texas and when the texas rangers sort of you know set property rights on a pedestal here um but what was the fence cutting wars again so that's not the case um what was the fence cutting wars after the civil war the state's completely economically devastated. You have a lot of uh, capital, particularly northern, but also a lot of European capital coming in and taking advantage of the dire financial um, straits that the that the society was in. And you started getting these huge land barons who are buying up all of the land. Well, Texas, like many other Western states, has this idea called the open range, wherein the land belongs to the people as a whole, right? So this is like an anti-private property belief that is central like to the very beginning of this place. And when these cattle barons came in, they started taking advantage of a new technology uh, called barbed wire. Other people knew it as the devil's rope. And they started fencing in all of this land. And they did it with a fervor, not only fencing in their land, but they also were fencing over public roads and public lands and things like that. And the people, the poor people, the working class people in Texas were aghast at this new development. So they started to organize themselves into all of these little groups um, called things like the Blue Devils, the Owls, my personal favorite, the Knights of the Nippers. And they would just go around the state and they would cut down barbed wire fences wherever they saw it. And it became a hot war because the land barons started hiring their own thugs to start shooting at people who are cutting down their fences. And then the fence cutters, um, you know, start arming themselves as well. But the entire state was engulfed in this like anti-private property, this enclosure of the commons to use maybe some, you know, Marxist terms that we like, you know, like this is, is our history. And it was brutally put down, like Mm -hmm. absolutely brutally uh, put down. The Texas Rangers did play a big role. They were coming out there and shooting Texans, including uh, one um, gentleman, uh, a Texas Ranger who was uh, found that he, they found, the state found out that he was trying to install bombs around fences across Texas. So that when people came over to uh, cut them, they would blow up. Right. I mean, really brutally, brutally put down. Um, and then what happened after that, they lose the fence cutting war. Um, but a lot of those people start joining up in different small town communities and something that became known as the farmer's Alliance, which was a precursor to the populist party as the populist party started uh, to continue and grown is very vibrant in this state. Um, they realized, okay, well, there's a, there's a tension between rich people and poor people. And we can't just have this agrarian versus urban mentality. We have to recognize that it's the rich versus the poor. A lot of those people ended up becoming early members of the Texas socialist party, um, which was a very significant factor across the state and um, you know, politically. And, you know, we know the history of the the socialist party in, in America, a lot of successes, um, but also, you know, we don't end up getting, you know, the, the socialist you know, system that we want to live under. But th- because of that movement, um, 
you know, when it came time when the social forces sort of aligned under the New Deal, a lot of these demands that were being made in the early 1900s by these folks were put into place, you know, like things like Social Security, mm-hmm. uh, like like things like national investment um, in our infrastructure, right? A lot of these demands were met in, in some form or another, right? And like, that's our history. Yeah. And you don't get caught that. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we can sort of pull up um, and, and look back and sort of see what worked, what didn't work. Um, from from those from those moments. So, like when I say I'm I'm proud to be a Texan, I'm happy to be you know of the a stock of the people that are <laughs> You know, yeah. And like we have like, and by the way, y'all, like I always say this, and on Left Reckoning, we do a lot of this. Like, look into your own community because I promise you um, that you have something like that yeah. um, in, in your community. And like, it's been really um, rewarding over the past couple of years to really focus on this and learn all these stories. I Man, I won't go into all of them, but like in St. Louis, for example. Um, there was a commune that took over the city and they held it for uh, for weeks until it was put down by the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they're like you have it everywhere. And I think it's worthwhile for us to be rooted in the, in that history and to understand it. And that's something that I think is um, not only sort of good for us spiritually, um, but I also think good for us politically to remind folks that, you know, socialism and these ideas and these fights that we're in right now are not kind of like foreign importations where like America is trying to trail Europe. Mm -hmm. No, they're homegrown Mm -hmm. as much as anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that gives us a, a, you know, um, that gives us something to to stand on and stand for that I think is very viable that we shouldn't be so quick to ignore or run away from because the right wing is so confident and comfortable with cloaking themselves in the flag or Trump doing whatever the hell he was doing to it um, at at that rally where he was kissing up on it. But, you know, (laughs) That's that's there for us, and we should be we should be taking it. Yeah, I 100% agree. David Griscom, again, a co-host of Left Reckoning. We will link that below and look out for his article in Jacobin. David, great to see you as always. Thanks for your time. Of course, thank you so much. I'm now joined by Vivek Chibber. He is professor of sociology at NYU, the author of the books The Class Matrix, Postcolonial Theory and the Specter of Capital and Locked in Place. And his most recent book is Confronting Capitalism, How the World Works and How to Change It. That is just out from Verso, and we will be linking that down below. Vivek, good to see you as always. Great seeing you again, Jen. So let's dive into your new book. Uh, It's partly an explanation of how capitalism works, uh, the ins and outs of the capitalist economic system. You've obviously been on the channel many times before, uh, including earlier this year, to talk about that. But the other part of your book is uh, has to do with political strategy and how we should think about fighting capitalism and ultimately overturning it. Right. So I thought it would be interesting to uh, kind of dive in there and and get your thoughts on uh, some of those issues that come up in the latter part of your book. Now, I want to start with the question of the left and state power. Uh, You, of course, argue uh, both in your book and elsewhere that under capitalism, the state is not and never will be a neutral entity, right? So I think that most people know that, you know, the political system, especially in the U.S., is uh, very heavily rigged in favor of the rich. Uh, You also point out that the state is structurally dependent on capital. So I, you know, I suppose this brings up the question, if the state is perpetually beholden to capital, why should leftists continue to fight for state power? And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because, of course, on the left, there is another tradition, uh, anarchism, which not only rejects, uh, you know, this idea that we should fight for state power, but rejects the idea of a state itself, right? So again, you know, uh, if the state is not a neutral entity and perpetually beholden to capital, uh, Vivek, do the anarchists have a point? Should we all become anarchists? Uh 
Well, you know, the anarchism is may not be what it's made out to be. Uh, historically, anarch the state is essentially a center of power, and anarchism isn't about avoiding the locus of power, or the center of power, but of dismantling it. So anarchists do seek to have power; they just seek to have power vested in working people, and that means dismantling the bourgeois state or the state as we find it today. That's a slightly different project from avoiding the state because in order to dismantle the state, you do have to take it on. The last truly gigantic anarchist movement we had was in the Spanish Civil War. They weren't avoiding the state. They were taking it on. These days, what we call anarchism takes the form of what is also called horizontalism, which is a kind of permanent movementism, movement of movements, and that does eschew or avoid grappling with the state or taking on the state. Now, if we want to call that anarchism, then yeah, it's wrong. Though I do think it's a mistake to call that anarchism. I think anarchists did historically, when anarchism was part of the working class movement, they took the state seriously because they had to. They were just seeking alternative forms of power. At least that's my view. Now, let's come back to the spirit of your question, which is, is it a mistake to give up on the state because it is a bastion of bourgeois power? I think the answer is, yeah, it's a mistake. You, you cannot do it for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that this, the last what three years, what they've shown us is that having some entree in the state can make a difference to building working class power. So not only is it the case that you've got people in Congress now who are, for example, on picket lines with workers, like um, Ilan Omar is right, is right now in Minnesota. But the, having a friendly NLRB has made a gigantic difference to organizing in Amazon and elsewhere, even in Starbucks right now, there are fired workers being reinstated because the NLRB is actually implementing the laws. That makes a big difference in movement building. But the second reason is that if you're not going to actually try to have some presence in the state that helps you build a movement, insulate you from state repression, having a counterweight when forces of reaction come down on you, what you're essentially saying to people is that they've got to be in the streets and in meetings and in agitations all the time for everything they need, because nobody in the state is going to be there to translate whatever movements they're building into legislation. So the state is always an external force coming down on them. And you're really asking people to be fanatics then. They're, they're, it's not going to happen. So it's not a realistic strategy. A realistic strategy is one where you build power, where you organize, where you fight against capital, and then some, some forces inside the state help translate that street-level, workplace-level power into enduring institutional and legislative advantages for you, which are hard to roll back and which you can then build on in the future. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on this subject of state power, um, I thought that something that was really interesting in your book is that you argue that the Russian Revolution and the Bolsheviks actually still offer some valuable lessons and models for the left today. And um, I, I want to focus on that for a second, because, you know, I think especially after the two Bernie Sanders campaigns, uh, the left has tended to look more to the social democracies of the Nordic states as kind of, you know, useful real life models than they have to the Russian Revolution. Uh, and I think that there are some good reasons 
for that. And, you know, to be clear, you don't discount the uh, the, the Nordic states at all. And I think that we can get into that a little later. Uh, but, but I do want to ask you about the Russian Revolution, because that seems to be like a little bit counterintuitive. What are the legacies of the Russian Revolution that you think are most important for left organizers today? Yeah, we're in an interesting place right now. 20 years ago, had there been um, YouTube stations, channels devoted to the left, and there weren't any, uh, this would have been a considered a ridiculous question. Because mm-hmm. 20 years ago, the left as it existed was still one that considered itself a lineal descendant of the Bolsheviks, either in Trotskyist groups or in Maoist groups or in some more orthodox communist, what's called Stalinist groups. Everybody considered themselves a lineal descendant of that that particular revolution, that particular event. And it's been a quite a sea change in the left today that that, that event is considered something of an exotic, uh, interesting episode, but not necessarily relevant today, to today's conditions. And my view is that is largely correct. I, I think the world today is so different from the structural, institutional, political conditions of the early 1900s that thinking of our job as simply trying to redo and re-achieve what they achieved is a mistake because of much of what enabled them to carry on as they did no longer exists. So the question then becomes, do they have anything to offer at all? And that's where, as you correctly say, Jen, I, I think they do. Um, that's a longer discussion. Let me zero in on two or three points. In the book, I focus on the organizational and on the institutional legacies of the revolution, which I think are positive ones, which hold lessons Mm -hmm. for us. I think the main positive organizational lesson is one that is also common to the social democracies. You sometimes hear it said, and I think it's correct, that all the left in the interwar period from the Bolsheviks through the German SPD through the Nordic social democracies, through the British Labour Party, all had one thing in common, which is they were primarily organizations not just fighting for the working class, but built on the working class. Their members were overwhelmingly workers. Their elected officials in the party, the leadership, was workers. And the people they sent to parliament were born workers. Now, these were therefore organizations that only not only spoke for the working class, as say the DSA does today, but they were themselves workers. And they made it their single-minded focus to organize people in working class neighborhoods and in workplaces, not in middle class settings. The influx of the middle class came a lot later during the popular front era. And that was in a setting where they were already in a culture of working class organizations. Now, if there's anything that separates today's left from the left, not just the Bolsheviks, but the wider left of that era, is that, and I've spoken on this many times on this channel, that today's left is overwhelmingly a middle class left, and that has an enormous impact on the kinds of politics that it pursues, on its internal culture, on the way it conducts itself, et cetera, et cetera. So the first legacy, I think, of the Bolshevik Revolution, the positive legacy, is to refocus the internal culture, the politics, and the goals of the organizations around not just organizing the working class, but being a vehicle for the workers to take over their own political beings, their own political lives. So that's one. 
The second issue is I, I, I do think that the Russian Revolution has a lot of lessons to offer for economic management, for planning. Some of those are negative and some of those are positive. Um, it was taken for granted for decades that if you're a serious socialist, serious Marxist, you have to be in favor of uh, replacing the market with the plan. And I think today we have to say we do have to roll back the market. There's no doubt about that. But replacing it with the plan, it basically means having an entirely planned economy. And we have to be very humble about this because we've never seen one that actually can work. And it's not, I think, appropriate, as many Marxists or socialists do, to dismiss the experience of Russian planning, Bolshevik planning, because it wasn't actually socialism. That assumes that if we try to have central planning, nothing that we try to do will be similar or have important um, overlaps with what the, the Soviet Union did or with the, what the Chinese did. That's just not true. If you go to their planning exercises, if you can show me how else to do central planning without having five-year plans, economic management from the top, without having iterative planning the way they did, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I'd be happy. But the short, less, the short point I'm making is a great deal of what they tried to do and failed will have to be again, central to any attempt at central planning. And therefore, my view is one less, another lesson of the Russian Revolution is to be very cautious about uh, embarking on an entirely planned or managed economy. I do have uh, some follow-up questions about central planning, uh, but I, I want to stay for a second on this question of or organization and what we can sort of take from the Bolsheviks in terms of organization. Uh, because something that you argue in your book is that, you know, their kind of cadre-based party model uh, was incredibly successful and historically has been kind of the model that is one of the most successful political vehicles for the left. And I think you say in your book also for some people on the right as well, right? Or for, for the right at times. Um, I, I, I think that it's worth kind of talking about party for a second, because, you know, obviously, given the constraints of the U.S. political system, uh, not least among that, the fact that we have a two party system. Uh, what do you think? How, how can we translate this kind of party model into 21st century America? We don't really know. Yeah, we, have right, clear, right. we have to be clear about that. Uh, the because if, if you take seriously what I said, which is that the world today is so different from the world back then, mm-hmm. then it's also going to affect our, our, our party, whatever our conception of the party and whatever our model of the party is. So some of what we try to do now will have to be um, genuinely innovative and will have to be settled upon through experience as mm-hmm. what works and what doesn't work. Okay, But we're not going to start from scratch, obviously. We have to see... Are there elements of what that second international legacy was that appear to be necessary or central even today to any sort of organization? And to my mind, yes, I I think that a socialist party, whatever else it is, will have to be a mobilizing party. It's going to be a fighting organization, the political uh, counterpart to what a trade union is in the class. These are both fighting organizations. Okay, so that means that at the very least, it's an organization that's going to have to have the people in it who are willing to fight, who are willing and have the right orientation towards that fighting. This is why parties in the interwar period recruited workers, because you didn't have to convince workers about the need to fight for working class interests. You do have to convince middle class people to fight for working class interests. That's just, there's no way around it. And that's why in today's socialist parties, 
so much of the energy goes into cultural politics and symbols and identities because that's that, that's what middle class people care about that is not going to get you to fighting capital it's just mm-hmm. not all right so one key component is what i already said which is you have to bring workers in the other is I, I, there's something called a cadre organization and that means an organization that trains its people ideologically and that sends them out sort of as missionaries to do the organizing and that is a they are the outer fil- filter for who gets into the party who d- and who doesn't i don't think there's any way around having a cadre based party if you're going to mobilize people and the reason i say that is it's not just the left as you pointed out that has adopted this model but even the right uh, to my mind the most effective political organization in the world right now is a semi fascist uh, political party in india the bjp and the BJP is the the most avid, I think, practitioner of a kind of second international politics. They're a cadre-based party, and they implant themselves in the communities that they seek to represent, and they're phenomenally effective in having a place in the culture of those communities that they represent. So it means that it's a model that works for mobilizing per se, not just the left, but also the right. I, I, I see. I, I do not think you're going to get a socialist party by putting an ad out on the web says, hey, you want to join a party? Click on this and you're going to get right. people joining. There has to be, to my mind, filters as to who comes in and who doesn't. Now, you can have different sorts of parties. You had historically, you had the kind of workers parties, then you had mass organizations and the criteria were different in the mass organizations and the workers parties. Um, so it doesn't mean that every party has to be the same. But an ideologically motivated, mobilizational party must have criteria for who can join and who can't, primarily economic criteria, what class do you belong to, and then within that, ideological criteria, and then they have to be trained, essentially, to get out the word, (laughs) to use a kind of religious jargon. I think those are absolutely going to have to be essential if you're going to go out there and try to take on capital. You know, I I think, though, that does kind of raise the question, uh, especially, you know, if we go back to what you were saying before and what you what you have talked about many times on this channel about this kind of growing divide between the actually existing left today and most working people in America. Um, I, I suppose my question is, how how do we go about cadre building without straying into a kind of like elite vanguardism? Uh, or maybe another way of asking the question is, you know, uh, given the current composition of the left, which you point out is too much rooted in the academy and the NGOs and is too middle class, uh, can you have an effective cadre system that also manages to be open and democratic? I mean, this is where I think the social democracies do have something very valuable to offer, because mm-hmm. it is the case that the social democratic parties, uh, the British Labour Party, um, the Germans, uh, the, the the lineal descendants of the SPD, they all uh, had some version of an activist-based, organizational, cadre-based party. And they did not, until as late as the 1970s, they had not ossified into bureaucratic, uh, gigantic organizations the way they are now, or vanguardism of the kind we saw in the Leninist sects and in the Bolshevik parties. And to my mind, the way they did it was by having many of the same elements the Bolsheviks did, again, overwhelmingly worker-based, having internal mechanisms of accountability, etc., 
internal uh, uh, organs of dissent uh, and uh, debate uh, without having a ideology that said everything that the leadership says must be the correct thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how helpful it is for me to say this because I'm merely just repeating the question. When I say you must have a party uh, in which the leadership doesn't isn't automatically correct in everything, that's simply reposing the question, how do we get there? And I'm not exactly sure. I, I, I think the answer lies in worker parties that were not Bolshevik parties and that managed to actually, this is key, managed to get something done. They weren't just talking shops. It's easy to find parties that are highly democratic and are talking shops. That's what we have today. But you need to, the, the third criterion along with worker membership and cadre based is they have to be actual fighting organizations that realize the sign of success isn't that everybody's happy inside the party, but that it's actually achieving things. And I think the social democratic parties show you that you can have these without going into vanguardism. Mm -hmm. All right. I want to jump now again to the question of central planning or lack thereof. Uh, I think, you know, uh, I mean, I think that, you know, you, you've obviously covered some of the limitations and the pitfalls of a fully planned economy. Um, but I think, you know, there there must be some middle ground, right? Like the term planning doesn't necessarily always have to mean like a 100% fully planned economy. Um, I think that there's probably a way to hypothetically do some kind of economic planning, um, but at the same time, maybe preserve a role for the market if a drastically reduced one. So, uh, you know, this is a way of saying, uh, what is the alternative to a fully planned economy uh, that's not capitalism? Uh, uh, you know, again, this is a kind of hypothetical. We don't know what the future will look like. Uh, but but what is one kind of model of market socialism, I, I suppose, that uh, might make sense? Well, if you're saying so, there are two alternatives to a fully planned economy. One is market socialism, which I'll, I'll define in a second. And the second is some advanced social democracy. Now, the advanced social democracy is still going to be capitalism. So if we say at the outset, what is the alternative to central planning that is not capitalism? We are ruling social democracy out already. I think that's a mistake Mm -hmm. uh, because many of the considerations that um, kind of incline me to be skeptical about centralized planning also have to be now cast onto the possibilities of market socialism. Because we not only have we not seen planning that works, we haven't yet seen a viable market socialist economy either. Mm-hmm. Now, look, the fact you haven't seen something doesn't mean you can't have it. In the early 1900s, uh, early, the early 1800s, we'd never seen democracy either. And that doesn't mean you can't have it. So you don't want to use that as a reason for undue pessimism. But you do want to use it as a reason to temper your expectations and to to try to mitigate wild fantasies about what is is not achievable. So let me not rule out social democracy just yet. And let me answer your question by considering both. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the social democratic issue. I think that any acceptable goal for the left has to have as its floor what the Nordic countries achieved from, say, 1955 to 1985 or so. They achieved a degree of of rolling back the market, of giving people equal rights, of decommodifying, that is, taking things out of the exchange nexus, uh, and of increasing working-class power. 
to a point that was unimaginable just a half a century before that. And we need to recognize that all of that's being taken away. We can kind of look back on that and say, wow, I mean, the left used to like saying, hey, but it's still capitalism. But you would take that capitalism over this one any day of the week. So that model, now what is that? They were actually different varieties of it. Uh, Norway had a much more uh, uh, nationalist uh, uh, a model based on nationalizing industries. In Sweden, they largely avoided nationalizing industries. Um, in France, they nationalized them even more. So there are different routes to social democracy. The common principle in all of them is to roll back the structural power of employers, to give the state instruments with which it can influence both the direction and the content of the investment decision, and to institutionalize the power of the working class in the workplace and within the state through trade unions and within the state. And once those things are done, key elements like your wages, the housing, the provision of housing, the cost of housing, medical care, transportation, all the essentials are either taken out of the market or they're heavily negotiated through an empowered working class and through employers. Now that's a model of capitalism, but it's a capitalism that is almost unrecognizably different from 19th century laissez-faire capitalism. And we are in no position right now to impugn it, the, mm-hmm. the, the way the world is going. Now, let's move to market socialism. What would that be? What differentiates market socialism from social democracy is the absence of private ownership, or at least the radical diminution of private ownership. In social democracy, you have at the most expanded level you might have lots of nationalized industries, but the key, the, the key actor in the economy is still private capital. And that's one reason they were able to roll it back in the 1990s and afterward, because they had the power to actually start going against the trade unions and the state and taking back what they lost in the 1940s and 50s. Mm-hmm. What market socialism does and what makes it more attractive is that it, it removes this player. So you will have, at the very least... A, a gigantic state sector, socialized property. You can call it nationalized property or something. But that nationalized property will not replace the market with planning. It will just mean that there's no private owners. If there's no private owners, you can still have things like competition. You can still have a labor market. You can still have, a, a to some degree, a money market and perhaps even credit markets, maybe not a capital market. So what, what market socialism does is it allows competition. It, it has plenty of monetary exchange. It might even have a labor market. What it takes away is the private owners of capital so that it's either the state that owns the capital or it's individual communities through things like co-ops, through things like worker ownership. So it's not just a community ownership, but worker ownership. You still have a market, but you do not have capitalists on top of the market. That's the essence of market socialism. You will also have some degree of planning in socialism, and sorry, in market socialism. Now, it'll be limited planning. It'll be planning reserved for the state sector or through some sort of negotiations between workers and whatever entities are controlling the firms, co-ops or socialized entities, community boards or something like that. But what you've done away with essentially is private capital. Mm-hmm. My, own pers- my own personal view is I think we should be conservative. And the best way to start towards that is to 
do what we know is achievable, which is you can nationalize about half the economy and you know how it will work. You can nationalize the utilities, the healthcare sector, transportation, um, uh, much of the media, much of the media has to be nationalized. It's the only way to save it. Um, Mm -hmm. And when you do all these things, you essentially have taken over probably anywhere from a third to half the economy. The sections that those those sections you've nationalized can be planned. They're planned right now in capitalism. There's a lot of planning in capitalism and utilities, transportation, et cetera, are sectors that can be planned easily. The rest, you go slowly. You see through an iterative process which dimensions of the remaining market can be socialized or can be nationalized, which ones have to be kept to themselves. The ones that in which you leave capitalists, how can you make sure that they don't have power over other people's lives the way they do under capitalism? So capitalism, to the extent that you have private capital, it's contained and it's limited by the state sector and through empowered communities and workers. I think that's the way to start. Well, this actually now brings me to kind of the end of your book where, you know, you say that ultimately it's actually not that useful to think of socialism as like a specific economic model, um, but rather we should think of socialism as a kind of set of uh, normative principles, right, and political goals. Can you talk a little bit uh, about what you mean by that uh, and, and maybe elaborate on how we kind of balance these considerations? Yeah, we're heading into an unknown territory right now. We tried something, planning, it didn't work. So now we have to, this is assuming we actually actually get some power at some point. <laughs> assuming you have that power, what do you do with it? Well, you have to try to now uh, build something new. What's that going to be? You no longer have the luxury of the blueprint that Marxists thought they had 100 years ago, which was we're going to plan everything. You now have to move forward and say, okay, what are we going to do? When you move forward, going into the darkness like this, what are you going to use as a crutch? What are your guardrails going to be? How are you going to know what your limits are, what you should do and shouldn't do? You have to go back to your underlying principles. That tells you what you're going to screen out, what you're going to keep in. To my mind, it was never supposed to be about planning per se. Planning was always an instrument towards a goal that you were trying to achieve, which is a humane and just society. All right, so why does planning appear to be the correct way to achieve that society is because planning supposedly gets rid of some of the worst things about capitalism and that enables us then to have a just and humane society. What does it do? It takes away the exploiters. Supposedly, it's going to give everybody a stake and a say in what's being produced and how much of it is being produced. And people take control over their lives. Now, we know planning didn't achieve that. In fact, it did the opposite in many conditions. It created a new class and people lost control over their lives. So let's say, okay, let's go back to the principles. The principles are we want a system in which one group of people cannot exploit another group of people. We want a system in which over and above that, other forms of domination are not able to take root, even though they're not class-based domination. There might be other like gendered and race, et cetera, et cetera. And you want a system... In which will institutionally prevent the emergence of a new class. So it's not just a temporary um, breather from exploitation, but you want to block the possibility of new classes even emerging. And finally, you want to have real democratic accountability of whoever's in charge. You don't want an enlightened despot, an enlightened dictator making sure there's no exploiters. You want no dictators at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that means you want a system, as long as the system is one in which you do not have class exploitation, in which people actually take control over their lives, 
in which there's real democratic accountability and an expansion of what we call liberal freedoms. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if it's planned or not. What matters is that you have the vision of justice that you were trying to achieve. Now, if market socialism can give you that, well, you have no right to say it's, it, it's not good enough. If social democracy can give you that, you can't say it's good enough. The reason we're skeptical of social democracy is what past experience has shown is that if you leave the class of capitalists in charge of the means of production, they are going to use it. They're not going to be sitting around waiting to be extinguished at some point through the final wave of nationalizations. They're going to see it as a fight to the death, and they will continually try to roll back whatever gains you've made. And that's why people like myself think social democracy has a lot of virtues, but it's politically unstable. It's Mm -hmm. going to be something that you're... So better to just change the class structure so people's material interests are different. That's the idea. And I think planning is should take up discussion over planning should be entirely practical discussions. Is this going to get us what we want? Is it achievable or not? And uh, sadly, on the left, too much is taken as a totem. If you're not for planning, you're not serious about emancipation. This is not true. Well, I think the question of uh, changing or overturning the class structure gets us to our final question, uh, which is about revolution. Uh, There's obviously, you know, a left tradition, as you've kind of alluded to, that says that only revolution and not, you know, piecemeal reforms, including social democracy, uh, will end capitalism. So how should the left think about the concept of revolution today? Um, Even even if uh, a lot of people um, have uh, gone to fits when they hear someone say revolution is not the agenda. And I understand. It's the only thing that makes Friday nights interesting for a lot of people (laughs) going out and talking. So I don't want to take that away from you. If you want to go talk about it, go ahead. I I think any just minimally sane person will have to agree, though, that is not around the corner. Mm -hmm. And that if anything is going to be achieved in the near future for the left, it's going to be through a kind of incremental aggregative process, the way we're seeing bit by bit uh, show its face today. So I think in the short run, we should all agree that even if you're interested in revolutions, you never get to a revolution without working class organizing. Yeah. E- even if there's a crisis, a major crisis of the state, an epical crisis, one where the social order is breaking down. If God hands you a social order that's breaking down and the working class is not organized, it'll be some other class that takes advantage of it. It will be the right. It, this was what we thought the Arab Spring was going to be an opening for a massive turn to the left in the Middle East. What ended up happening? There was an opening, but the class that was best positioned to take advantage of it gained. And that was the military, if you want to call it a class, uh, and chunks of the professionals. So, first of all, revolutions cannot be made through flipping a switch. Revolutions require organic crises of the ruling order, and those don't come around every day. Secondly, even if you get an organic crisis of the ruling order, unless your class is organized enough and positioned appropriately to take advantage of it, you'll get your asses handed to you. You will end up actually worse off than you were before. That means even if you think somewhere in the mythical future there's going to be a revolutionary opening, right now, today, you start by organizing workers. You start by trying to gain some sort of power over the legislative and the judicial process, which means you do exactly what social democrats would do. 
in the short run, we are all social democrats in this sense, which is we're trying to fight for incremental aggregative changes right now. Now, if you want to say that sometime in the future, if we continue down this path, there could be an opening for a ruptural change, a military revolution, a social revolution. I'm not going to argue with you about this because we're talking about non-events. Maybe angels will come down from the sky. Obviously, I'm a skeptic that it can ever happen. And I could give reasons for that. But people who are into revolutions are not persuaded by reasons. Because since it's a future, you can believe in a miracle because anything can happen in the future. So fine. If you want to believe that it could happen, just understand this, that in order to get there, you first need to do all the hard work of organizing, doing politics, getting out of the settings that the left is in right now, and being in the working class and organizing them. If you want to carry on with the fantasy that at some point there could be a revolution, fine. You, I don't begrudge you that. Go ahead. All right. Well, Vivek Chibber's latest book, again, is Confronting Capitalism, How the World Works and How to Change It. We will link that down below. I highly recommend it to everybody. Uh, perhaps replace one of your Friday nights uh, bickering about the possibility of revolution with a perusal of Vivek's book. Vivek, thank you again for your time. It was great to see you as always. Thanks so much, Jen. It's a real pleasure. Thank you.